Hey everybody, welcome back to the Exodus Bible Study. A uh, little bit of a summary yesterday, thanks to Michael for covering that. We move um, through the story again as we move into this 10th plague. Uh, there is a lot of lead up to this one because it, it occupies such an important place in the life of Israel, even post-Exodus and post this story. But now we do get to the details. So I am here, uh, verse 21, as we move into what happens during this plague. So let me let me read for a little bit, and then we'll discuss. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, Go select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lambs. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your home until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to enter your house or strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep the observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worship. The Israelites went and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. One of the things, Michael, that I think is very interesting about this is uh, it's one thing to say that this becomes an important story in Israel, but um, we've spent almost uh, arguably at, at least a chapter and a half on how they will keep this in the future. There's no other part of this story that has been as tied to life after the Exodus as this. You know, the generations to come, you'll do this. When your kids ask you, you're going to tell them. So it, before this has even happened, it, it has been heightened in the narrative as, as a as a signature, as a foundational part of Israelite identity, much in the same way that circumcision was. I, I don't mean that this occupies the place of circumcision, but there are those moments in the story of Israel that are so fundamental to who they are that they continue to be important. And I think this story has really made it clear in the amount of foreshadowing it's done and in the amount of uh, prefiguring that it's done, that this is not going to be something that simply just happens and then you tell the stories. This is going to be something that is celebrated, reenacted, and remembered as long as the people... um, are faithful to this occurrence. Yeah, absolutely. The word that jumps out to me is perpetual ordinance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a perpetual always and into the future. And Clint, I'm going to add to that. I think that's exactly right. That's very helpful to point out how the text has really slowed down its pacing. Another thing I would point us to here is the actual instruction offer as to what you should teach from this. And I can't help but smile with our different teaching styles and speaking styles that this is the thing that sticks out to me. But I love when he says, uh, when the kids ask, this is what you tell them, right? You will say, it's the Passover sacrifice. He passed over the houses of the Israelites. Um, He struck down the Egyptians, but he spared the houses. In, In other words, not only is this a thing that we should do as a religious right to those who are are giving us this in the narrative, not only is this a thing that the community needs to do from now on, but also 
this is the thing that it means and needs to be handed to the next generation. That there's a already a kind of uh, teaching and a, a kind of uh, leading effort happening there. And and Clint, you know, as people who work in a faith context, uh, one cannot take that for granted. Uh, in other words, the faith doesn't get passed on except for intentionality. Mm-hmm. These practices don't happen accidentally. So I think the point here being made is um, that even before we get to the narrative's telling of the sign and wonder, the, the plague itself, it wants us to know this is not just a telling of history. This is actually uh, much like the creation story turns into that six days of work, one day of rest. This is a pattern for the people to follow now and forever, and I think that's an essential thing to remember as we enter into the story. Yeah, and and this is outside the context of Scripture, but in the in the reenactment of this, if you have ever had the opportunity to be involved in a, a Jewish Seder meal, the Passover supper, uh, this is all very scripted out. Um, down to the parts of the meal and what they mean, salt water, herbs, bitterness, horseradish. That as this story is done, you know the best way to um, the best way to teach and educate children in these kind of things is to to have a ritual, to have something that has meaning, but it's something physical, something visible. And that remains true in the way that many in the Jewish faith uh, practice the Passover. This this does remain an important part of the story in the Jewish community. In the Christian community, though, there are versions of Christian Seder meals, Christian Passover meals. Um, I would say primarily, Michael, Michael, our connection to this story has been um, more philosophical, more theological. Yeah. The idea of a lamb, the idea of blood saving us, the idea of a mediator, the idea of being saved from death, from darkness, from being delivered, um, redeemed. You know, the, this sets in some ways a, a very strong framework for the way that Christians come to understand their own story. And, and I think we, you can see a lot of connection, a lot of ties to that story. So it's, it's interesting that in both traditions, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, this story remains important, though I think in different ways. Yeah, I don't want to belabor that point, and I also don't want to paint with too fine of a brush, Clint, so disagree if you, or disagree if you think that this is wrong, but I, I think a case could be made that as it points to the Exodus text, Christians have often read it for its spiritual meaning, but for its historical observance, I think there's a great amount of time that's been spent, and some of it helpfully, to help us understand what Jesus's observance of Passover would have looked like, which helps us to understand what the biblical account of the Last Supper would have looked like. And so in some ways, I think it helps tell the story of the things that surrounds that night when Jesus is captured and in which he does offer his life for the sake of the world. I think in that way, Exodus is in the background. It helps us understand some of the nuance, some of the shades of colors that are in the midst of all of this. But I think you're exactly right. Christians have not really turned to Exodus looking for the practice to be normative in our own forms of worship, though we find it 
deeply connected spiritually and very helpful practically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good reminder that, you know, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus himself is with the disciples celebrating the Passover meal, retelling this story, which the, the Passover meal begins when we were slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. So that Christ himself participates in this ritual retelling and reliving of the story, I, I think is significantly important. So then we get to verse 29. This is the, the actual moment of the plague. So verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the night. He said, Rise up, go away from my people. Both you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. Um, so the the actual telling of the event uh, it is fairly stark. I, I think the most stunning words are not a house that without someone who has been struck dead, um, the the cry, as God predicted, the cry is tremendous, and it is at this moment that Egypt is broken. Um, we've seen, you know, the Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. We've been through all that multiple times, but it is at this moment that, at least temporarily, the Pharaoh is broken. He has no answer. He has no reserve. Um, much like we saw and, and much like we conjectured in the early part of this story, Michael, when we saw a change in the demeanor of the Israelites when their own children were attacked. Yeah, right. Here we kind of mirror that with the idea that this, this guts the Egyptians. They want no more of this battle with God. And Pharaoh immediately in the night, it can't wait. He goes to Moses and Aaron. Or he brings them to him and he says, go away, all of you, everyone, go, take your flocks, your kids, all of those things that were negotiating points earlier. It, they don't matter anymore. It, I, I just want you to go. And, and then there's this very odd last line, bring a blessing on me too. And, and it's unclear exactly maybe what that means. Certainly Pharaoh is as a leadership, uh, from a leadership perspective in a horrible moment for his people. But it, it's unclear. If he has something specific in mind, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe this is simply some acknowledgement that he now understands God to be more powerful than he is. Yeah, it is striking how economical this narrative is in the words. I mean, for all of the setup that we've had, Clint, mm -hmm. I mean, it does not linger very long. I would only point out here this language uh, the universality of the judgment. The firstborn of Pharaoh, who we expect Pharaoh's been lo locked in conflict with God, right? But then that continues on to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And that's the human prisoner, right? And then the firstborn of the livestock. It goes all the way to the animals of Egypt. The judgment is so thorough that it leaves no living thing untouched. And 
you know, we have said numerous times in setup to this moment now over chapters and chapters of Exodus that the judgment that would come would be brutal, unimaginable, uncalculable. I, you know, if you dared for a moment to imagine what this looks like in the modern world, if this happened today, in other words, uh, th- this would be undoing. It, it would be a, a, an event um, so- somewhat like... Um, Ooh, I got to be really careful with this, but I'm thinking, you know, Marvel and the finger snap and all the people disappear. I, I mean, that's not what's happening here. This is this is God versus Pharaoh. But I do think there's a there's a cataclysmic seismic event that has happened here. And you only understand that. I think you're right to point out, Clint, you only understand that this is necessary if you have followed that in the first nine plagues, Pharaoh has repeatedly been given options out and set himself against God and chosen uh, a different path. And also the fact that Pharaoh's the one who set himself in warfare against God's people in his subjection of them and in his order to kill the children. So I think that word that you started with uh, here today is a helpful word that we can't help but read this latter part of the story by without that first part of the story. And if this seems uh, like a costly price, it's because it is, and it's intended to be. Throughout these stories, we've seen a kind of a ramp up. And, you know, again, to remember that in the early part of the stories, there were these sorcerers or magicians that could repeat some of the acts. They could um, manufacture their own versions of what happened in the plague. But by the time we get to this 10th one, and, and I would argue it's order of magnitude above the other plagues, there is no question. There is no doubt. This is so final. This is so, um, this is so stark. This is so painful. This is so stunning that there is simply no question anymore of what is happening of who is in charge, of who has control, of who has power, of who has been in the wrong. I, I mean, this this is, you know, the level ten. Uh, not to not to equate that with the ten plagues, but I mean, this is beyond anything we've seen. Though what we've seen has been bad, and I think uh, again from the Israelite perspective, in which the Egyptians deserve this kind of punishment for what they've done. Um, this is celebrated. That may be much harder for us as those who look in on the text as outsiders, but not only is this victory, but it's victory so complete that it could never be questioned. So I'm not going to steal tomorrow's thunder, if you will join us again for the study, Uh, but in verse 33, we have um, the Egyptians are urging the people to hasten their departure. That word departure is critical because we're in the book called Exodus. And I just want to be clear today that this serves as the inflection point, that that this is the moment in which that, that Exodus begins. All of this has been God calling, God setting up, God locked in this tussle with Pharaoh. Um, there are still many, many challenges, Clint, right? I'm not trying to in any way downplay all of the substantial ways that even Pharaoh is going to be a threat to the deliverance of the people. But I want to be very clear that the text makes it clear with the institution of the Passover meal, sort of a foreshadowing of 
this is going to be effective and this is what how you're going to remember it. Uh, we, the reader, now come to know. It, it is clear as we come into the text thus far, everything has changed and, and this is the beginning of the physical move, the exodus, the deliverance that this book is even named for. And I, I think it's worth noting that it took this costly this much of a seismic event to accomplish that, but it has been accomplished. And, and you know, we've been delivered here now. We can say more about this in the future, Michael, but I think it's very interesting. Uh, not quite half, but roughly the first half of the book, the major problem for Israel is Egypt. The second half of the book, the major problem for Israel is Israel. And so I, I yeah, I, we will get a change of uh, focus here in a couple of chapters as we move further and further out of Egypt and as the tension becomes more and more an inner tension rather than an outer tension. I think it's it's um, really well done how the book captures that in two kind of separate parts for us. That's good work. Uh, friends, we're glad that you would spend some time with us today as we have uh, gone through some difficult sections here of Exodus. Look forward to being with you again tomorrow as we continue on, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. 